1999, director Sam Mendes and star Kevin Spacey give us a poignant look behind the curtain into America's upper middle class. In 2019, we sample the most popular Canadian whiskey. The film is American Beauty. The whiskey is Crown Royal. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1999 film, American Beauty. Brad? This film is not beautiful. Ooh. It is beautiful. It's extremely well made. But there is extremely crass, disgusting things going on in this yeah, movie. Yeah, so let's let's do this. At the top of the podcast here, we have, we have a couple things to say. Obviously, we're, we're going to have to talk about the star of the film, Kevin Spacey. Right. And what it's like to watch this movie in the wake of, you know, Spaceygate and, yeah. and Me Too. Um, but we needed to say at the top here, you know, we don't. We try not to use salty language on the podcast, but the nature of this movie, we're going to be talking about some more adult themes than we normally do. So, you know, use your discretion as we proceed to talk about American Beauty. Yeah, there there are some things in this movie that are, for lack of a better term, extremely crass. Yeah. And that doesn't stop it from being a great movie, but it does make it difficult to like in certain ways. Yeah. I mean, the characters do reprehensible things. Yeah. And I do think that the overarching critique of this movie is what happens in the suburbs yeah. and what we try to keep behind closed doors and pretend we have these perfectly manicured lives. And we don't. But in order to talk about the things that happen in this film, we're going to have to talk about, you know, some really sketchy stuff. Yeah. And the first thing I think that we should just get out of the way now. Yeah. Uh, is is Kevin Spacey. Yeah. yeah. Kevin Spacey is the star of this film. Uh, he won an Oscar for this movie. And we all know that in the last year, uh, he was accused of and, you know, essentially proven to have uh, preyed on young male uh, co-stars and actors in Hollywood over the last couple decades, really. Uh, he's, he's had a pattern of this behavior. Um, it is reprehensible. It makes it difficult to watch his movies. And the thing is, I think you can still watch his movies and appreciate he is truly a great actor. He is. He, I mean, he's a great actor. The The way he portrays his characters is brilliant. I think the big thing about him is his control of voice. He, like, he can be so cutting in the way he speaks to other people on screen. It is brilliant. Kevin Spacey is a great actor, but he's not a great person. And that is a real struggle that if that's something that keeps you from enjoying his films, I get it. So uh, last year or, or maybe two years ago when Allison Janney was doing her press junket and she's in this film and we'll, we'll get to the explanation of what this film's about in a minute. But Allison Janney, uh, who most of you might know from the West Wing, uh, she was doing her press junket for her movie, I, Tanya, when all of the Kevin Spacey stuff broke and they were interviewing her and asked if she thought that she would no longer be able to watch this film or, or what this might mean as this movie goes forward. And she said, no, this movie will always be a classic movie that I will always be proud of. Kevin Spacey's work is amazing in that. I think that his behavior outside of work is reprehensible, but his work as an actor doesn't take away that. I think that will always be an individual decision if anyone decides to watch his movies again. And now look, we're on the 20th anniversary of this film coming out. That's part of the reason why we decided to talk about it today. I think it's a great film. I'm going to tip my hand here. This is this is a great movie and it's a great leading performance from Kevin Spacey. And I think that we need to take it on the merits that the film offers. I don't think that we can exclude the work of the hundreds of people who worked on this film just for the actions of Kevin Spacey. And we're not talking about his ability to be a moral, upstanding human being. We're talking about how he helped make this work of art. And right. we're going to evaluate it on that grounds. Anything to add, Brad? Good podcast. Good podcast. <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, let's move into talking about the film itself. Film yeah. came out in 1999. Sam Mendes is the director. This is his feature debut. Uh, he, he had worked on the stage uh, in London in the West End. Before this, this was his first film. He landed it with DreamWorks. So Steven Spielberg was executive producing this movie. Uh, Spielberg loved it when he got a, a preview screening of it. He's working with one of the best cinematographers of all time in Conrad Hall. What other movies has he done? So he's... He, he got off to such a hot start because, I mean, you're talking about, I think he won Best Director for this as well. Uh, he followed this up with Road to Perdition with Tom Hanks, which is also one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. He followed that up with uh, Jarhead in 05 with Jake Gyllenhaal, which was a really good movie, but very slow moving. Uh, and then he's done a few things since then. He did 
he did. He's done a few of the James Bond. Yes. <laughs> he did a movie, a small indie movie called Away We Go. And then he kind of splashed back into things by doing Skyfall. Okay. Which is like the most, maybe the best James Bond movie of all time. Like one of the most highly rated ones for sure. Uh, so he's the done best the last. Of, the best of the Daniel Craig era. For, for sure. sure. He's done the last two Bond movies. And I think he's kind of taking a break now. I, I'm sure he's still working in theater. I would have really liked to have seen Sam Mendes make a bigger splash in Hollywood because, you know, this movie, what a debut to come into. This truly, from a directorial standpoint, is a brilliant movie. Yeah. It, it really hits all of the key points in such a way that you are drawn into the movie from the very start and never let go of. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about the plot of the movie with our favorite segment, Brad Explains. I really need to start like writing down my synopsis of the movie beforehand because I feel like I kind of fumble through these. I think it works better off the cuff, though. Like, yeah. If someone were to just ask you randomly on the street, hey, what's American <laughs> the film Beauty American about? Beauty? Which is something that like going into this movie, what, my only preconceived notion was that whenever you were at like Blockbuster as a kid. Yep. I remember the cover of this movie. You remember the cover of the I movie? I absolutely did. This is some chick holding a rose to her stomach and you're kind of like, what's going on what here? What is this about? Yeah. Yeah. So the movie... American Beauty is about a disillusioned. Is he a writer? Yeah, he says he writes for a magazine, That's but what it's I like thought. an advertising executive thing. Yeah. I don't know. So I don't know. They don't really make it clear, which probably works for the movie because the movie is about the generalness of suburbia. Right. So, anyways, he is a writer of some sort, salesman kind of guy for a magazine, and he becomes very disillusioned with his controlling wife and with the illusion of perfection that you have to uphold in suburbia. And he basically goes on an adventure to find himself. But the thing that wakes him up to this is when he falls in love with a high school girl that goes to school with his daughter. Right. And the, the entire movie is about him. I don't, I don't even know. What is the movie? About? Yeah. So here's the thing is like the, the movie from like a screenwriting standpoint, it's the story of a midlife crisis. Yeah. I mean, it starts when he starts his midlife crisis, yep. when he's at the peak of his uh, desperation with his dead end job working as a corporate nobody and it ends where his midlife crisis ends and spoiler yeah, alert spoiler alert where his you his life, life ends. ends you find out at the very beginning of the movie uh through narration that he's dead yeah. he says in less than a year i'll be dead and he is narrating the film kind of as this omniscient afterlife narrator it's very similar it's in the same vein as a movie we haven't watched yet but sunset boulevard a Billy Wilder movie, which is narrated by the main character who you find out at the very beginning is dead. And so you go into this movie kind of not quite knowing what it's going to be. So the movie is about this guy named Lester Burnham who is going through a midlife crisis. He's, he's, you know, they, they say middle class, but he's certainly the upper, upper tier of middle class. It's, it's a really upper class uh, suburb. Right. And so it's about him and his struggle to overcome this uh, midlife crisis. He has these weird misplaced feelings for a classmate of his daughter. It's about his wife and her sexless, loveless marriage that she's in and her desire to be the best. in Not her only field. that she's in, but that she created. She's causing it. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's about all these periphery characters, uh, their neighbors and the weird authoritarian colonel that lives next door and his his son that's lashing out and is, is, you know, portrayed as a weirdo. And all of the colonel's repressed homosexual rage. Yeah. So basically what it's about is that suburbia is actually hell and that everyone is pretending and this movie pulls back the curtain on the pretenders. We've talked about uh, Kevin Spacey already a little bit. He yeah. won Best Actor for this fantastic performance. What all, what all awards did it win? I know it was Best Movie and Best Actor. Was it Best Adapted Screenplay? No, it's an original screenplay. So it was written by this guy named Alan Ball, uh, who some of you may know because he created the show Six Feet Under on uh, HBO. Huh. I've never heard of that. It's a great TV show. And it has the same sort of tone as this film, which is that it's, you know, I don't really, this isn't a phrase that people use, but it's like serio comic. Like it's, it's a comedy and it's a really dark, cynical black comedy. But then it has moments where it's straight drama and it's very moving, but equally as funny. Yeah. Uh, so this movie actually won five Oscars. It won Best Picture... It did win Best Actor for Spacey. It won Best Director for Sam Mendes in his uh, debut. Best Original Screenplay and Best Cinematography, of course. Yeah. And then it was nominated uh, for Editing, for Original Score, and then for Annette Benning as Best Actress, though she lost. So when we look back at this cast, though, I mean, I, I use this term a lot with the, the movies we watch, but this cast is stacked top to bottom. Great performances. Brad, who stands out to you in this film? I really enjoyed The Daughter. Oh, no. Did you really? Yeah. 
This was the one performance that I was saving to talk about how bad it was. <laughs> She's so bad, dude. I thought that she portrayed the disillusioned, frustrated daughter extremely well. I will say this, like the way she carries herself, her facial expressions, all great. It's the line readings. Every line she has, everyone else in the movie sounds like they're talking like a normal person. Yeah. You can tell she's like reading a line that she memorized. Really? Oh, yeah. Her name's Thora Birch. Yeah. She seems like a lovely woman. I just, (laughs) I think that she's the one weak link in this movie. And and again, the roles in this film and, and the things that they ask the actors to do very challenging. Yeah. And like, as a, as a, I'm assuming she was in her early 20s when she made this movie, you know, she goes topless playing right. an 18-year-old. It's a very risky, bold role to take. And so I don't fault her for any of that, but I just don't think she's that good. The thing for me is she came across in those ways. I don't disagree that she kind of came across a little wooden, would you say? Yeah. To me, I, it fit her personality as a young teenager trying to figure out what to do with her life when her parents are falling apart around her. Yeah. She closes in on herself and she becomes very stilted. And so I it, it worked for me. She might just be a bad actress, but it might <laughs> it might have worked in this role for me. So this movie starts with a videotape playing. And we later find out that Kevin Spacey's daughter, whose name is Jane, she is dating this kid, Ricky, who's moved next door, who's the son of the colonel that we were talking about. Ricky likes to film things. Everything. <laughs> Ricky has this weird obsession with videotaping things. And he comes across as a real creepy dude. And you come to find out through the course of the movie, as you normally do with movies about the the absurdity of suburbia, that the craziest one is actually the most sane one. And the movie starts with a videotape of him and Jane talking, where she's complaining about her dad, Lester, Kevin Spacey. And the scene ends with him jokingly asking, do you want me to kill him for you? Cut to black, title card, American Beauty. So this movie starts and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a crime drama. Right. Like, what's this movie going to be about? And actually, the funny thing is that there was a deleted scene that they had originally left in the film that it ended with the two of them being arrested and found guilty of murdering Lester. Wow. Which we know in the course of the film isn't true. Right. But that's how they decided to end the film. Huh. And they cut that in favor of what they actually did. And I think that was a really good decision. I don't, yeah, I don't think that that scene would serve the overall moral of the picture that suburbia is hell. Absolutely. But it would have been fascinating. Oh, for sure. So after that scene, you get this intro narration where Lester is narrating as like this omniscient godlike character talking about how he's dead. And I thought it was really cool because they give away that he's dead. And then the next shot, the first shot that you actually see Lester in is looking down at him from his ceiling in bed, kind of like a God's eye view of things. Mm-hmm. And you have this idea that there's some weird fate going on in this movie that's going to be driving Lester towards his ultimate, you know, demise. Yeah. It's actually like the sixth sense. He's been dead the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. The sixth sense. Also, also 20 years old this year. Also wow, nominated for Best Picture was 99. in 99. Yeah. Wow. So you get this shot of Lester in bed just waking up, going to his boring job. His, his bed is empty because mm-hmm. his wife has gotten up and gotten out of bed. And you get this really wonderful, cynical opening narration about how Lester's pathetic and he knows he's pathetic. But then he goes and looks outside and he sees his wife, Carolyn, gardening. And Annette Benning in this movie, I couldn't get a handle on her for the first 30 minutes. Right. But it's because she's so good at doing the rich, fake, realtor Housewives voice. Housewives of... Yes. She's perfect. Yeah. And the first time we see her, she's pruning a rose bush. And the omniscient narrator, Lester, says, like, do you notice how the handle on her pruning shears matches her gardening clogs? That's not on accident. Yeah. And I just think it's such a great line to give you every indication of what kind of character she's going to be. Yeah. I There was something about her. She is the microcosm of the movie. Yep. Of wanting passion while also wanting order, while wanting a little bit of chaos, but wanting all sorts of control. She represents suburbia for the movie. Yeah. And I, I was, yeah, she, her performance was over the top. I wrote down that Carolyn, her character, yeah. is as perfectly manicured as her yard. Yep. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think it's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. I also think, how much do you want to bet that there's at least one full doctoral thesis written about the imagery of roses in American Yeah, movie? and I think we should get into it. We should write that thesis in this podcast today. Lester comments on Carolyn out in the yard, and he says, I get exhausted just watching her. Mm-hmm. And you get this idea of who Lester is because, you know, he's disheveled. He's sitting in the back seat while his wife and daughter sit in the front seat. You know, for lack of a better term, Lester's presented as like what people would call like a beta. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And where this movie could have gone wrong is in portraying Lester's great awakening as him becoming an alpha male. 
And I thought for a while that's where this movie might go. And it's absolutely not. It's about something much deeper than that. Lester is fascinating to me because I think the big thing is he moves from a place where he doesn't know what he wants and he's told what he wants to he knows what he wants. I don't know. There's something about him where he still doesn't seem to have a full grasp on where he's going. He, he has this idea of like, well, I like this high school girl and I kind of want her. But he still just is like, well, I guess I'm just going to flip some burgers. Yeah. Because I liked that when I was a kid. And, and so he's partially trying to recapture his youth while also trying to feel like a man. Yeah. So we get this early scene of Lester and his wife, Carolyn, and their daughter, Jane, at dinner together. And it doesn't go well. And Lester kind of chases Jane out in the kitchen to apologize. And that's when we're introduced to the character of Ricky, who's the awkward, creepy kid next door. And we're introduced to him through his video camera. We see that someone is filming from the other side of the window, Lester and Jane getting into an argument. Which could be a horror film. It could. But the way that it's filmed, and I think the score helps too. The thing with Ricky being the camera kid, it seems really gimmicky at first. But the footage, it's really beautiful and, and heartbreaking because there's no dialogue, but you can see Spacey and Thora Birch's argument and the reactions that they both have. And it's, it's a snapshot of this disintegrating father-daughter relationship. And I think the reason that it works so well is because the movie is trying to give you a picture on suburbia in general. And so when you have that camera shot from Ricky with no audio, but you see them fighting and arguing, it's almost like you could apply that video to any conversation. You could overlay any argument that's happening in suburbia over that video, yeah. and it would work. And it's happening, again, behind closed doors. It's happening, you have to peer into the window to see behind the curtain of this fake life that everyone in suburbia is presenting. And I really gravitate towards stories like this in general. Um, my favorite book of all time is Revolutionary Road. Uh, which was made into a film about 10 years ago, directed by Sam Mendes, huh. starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Like it's it's all about how suburbia is fake and um, it's really cynical. But you can even go back farther than that to looking at the way Fitzgerald wrote about rich people in The Great Gatsby and things like that. I think that this movie is in the vein of, of some of these other great classic works of literature and film that depict what's really going on behind closed doors and how the perfect life, you know, isn't actually perfect. And it's interesting because when you think about like classic tropes in literature and movies, I think a lot of times you see how a character who is in wealth and prominence has to be fake all of the time. It's only when they fall from the great height into the realm of poverty or a third world country or some sort of low class citizenry that they find themselves of who they are. Sure, yeah. And I think you see that in this movie that... It's not until he starts doing drugs and like debasing himself that he finds who he really is. Yeah. And uh, that's another direction the movie could have gone that would have been wrong, which is just to celebrate him doing those things. I think it's very obvious that he's a middle aged man that's doing pathetic things. Yeah. But at the same time, he is kind of presented as this heroic figure because he's at least breaking out of the chains of what everyone else is. You know, he asks his wife, Carolyn, multiple times, like, what is this? What is this thing we're pretending to do? And he finally gets to a point where he's almost able to seduce her again. And he's got a bottle of beer in his hand. And Carolyn like looks over and says, Lester, you're going to spill beer on the couch. And he just about loses it's my, it's it. It's one of my favorite scenes because he's just going, it's a couch. He's like throwing pillows. Carolyn's like, this is a $4,000 sofa. It's not just a couch. Italian leather. Whatever happened to that girl? We used to fake seizures at front parties when she got bored. We used to run up to the roof of our first apartment building to flash the traffic helicopters. <laughs> have you totally forgotten about her? Because I haven't. Lester, you're gonna spill beer on the couch. So what? It's just a couch. This is a $4,000 sofa upholstered in Italian silk. This is not just a couch. It's just a couch! This isn't life. This is just stuff. And it's become more important to you than living. Well, honey, that's just nuts. I'm only trying to help you. He sees through it. Right. In a way that only the teenagers do. It's like the adults just don't get it in this movie. 
And I, I think that it's not only a critique on suburbia, but a critique on a former way of thinking where things are so important and the, and the stuff that you buy defines you. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I think we would still say that we're in a society where the stuff you buy defines you. Cap- yeah. Like that's the that's capitalism at its at its core is that you should buy things. Yeah. But Kevin Spacey is pointing out the fallacy in that and that that it's not the answer. Right. And I don't necessarily with I not necessarily I don't agree with his answers on what the important things in life are. But I don't think you're supposed to either. Right. I want to talk about Annette Benning for a second, because I think that she is underrated in this movie because she's so good that it almost comes across as her as a fake person. She's so good at playing fake. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think that the script doesn't do her any favors in some parts. Because there are some parts where she has a line early in the movie where Lester's like, our neighbors probably moved out because you cut down their sycamore. And her, her response is, a substantial portion of the root structure was on our property. That was our sycamore too. That tells you everything you need to know. Yep. That's a great line. Yep. But then you've got the really over-the-top reaction that she gives uh, when she can't sell a house. And she comes inside and she's like beating herself in the face and calling herself stupid. And I think I think you have to play that scene as big as she did because it's, it's a cynical movie. And it's about the absurdity of the things these people are beating themselves up over. Like mm. no, in the grand scheme of things, who cares? You're a realtor in suburban wherever they are, Illinois or California, wherever they are. And and she's literally punching herself, calling herself stupid because she can't sell a house. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and if anything, it's also p- pointing out how stupid the whole self-help movement is in the in the sense that it's these suburban people who have it all. And yet they're still listening to tapes, you know, cassettes at the time. Yeah. On you, you are worth it and you are strong and you can conquer and you are all these things. And she's pumping herself up. Which only leads to the downfall of you're stupid, you suck, you're a failure, yeah. you can't win. And that's, again, like, I think that scene is necessary because it's such a cynical look into suburbia. I don't think that scene's necessarily funny, but I do think there's a lot of comedy in this movie. And Brad, did you pick up on the comedy or wh- did you find any of it actually funny? Oh, for sure. Okay. Th- this movie was brilliantly funny. And I've seen other movies that could be considered like dark comedies mm-hmm. that... I'm sorry, but it's not for me. This movie worked with the comedy that they had yeah. because it it was absurd comedy. They're sure. pointing out the absurdity of spilling beer on a couch. They're, you know, they point out all these absurd things. And even the way in which, so later in the movie, um, Chris Cooper, who we should talk about his Yeah, we'll get to him after the break for sure. He thinks that his son is having a homosexual relationship with Kevin Spacey. And even the way that they filmed that is darkly hilarious. It's, yeah, it's funny. Because you know that they're actually just rolling a joint and smoking weed. Right. Which, once again, Chris Cooper would hate that as well. But you know that he would hate it nowhere near as badly yeah. as <laughs> right. them having homosexual relationships. Right, right. And there's something comedic about that. And when it's really not funny at all. And part of it, too, is you you have to give credit to Spacey and especially Spacey and Benning for their co- comedic timing, which they don't get credit for. I'm thinking of the scene early on in the movie where we're first introduced to Jane's friend, Angela, who's the character that Kevin Spacey falls in love with. Right. And right after they meet at uh, Spacey and Benning go to see their daughter perform a cheerleading routine at right. a basketball game. And right after the basketball game, they all come out in the parking lot. And Lester and Carolyn are meeting this friend of their daughter. And there's so many layers to how awkward that scene is. Because, like, Lester is embarrassing himself. Because he's just he's just staring at this girl. This is my friend, Angela Hayes. Okay. Good to meet you. You were also good tonight. Very precise. Thanks. Yeah, nice to meet you, Angela. Honey. I am so proud of you. You know, I watched you very closely. You didn't screw up once. <laughs> okay, uh, we have to go. So what are you girls doing now? Dad, we're going out for pizza. Oh, really? Do you need a ride? We can give you a ride. I have a car. You want to come with us? Thanks, but I have a car. That's one of those scenes where, like, if you've watched The Office. The Office, yes. Scott's Tots. Oh, gosh. And that, it's, that yeah. level of just like, oh, I'm watching this and I feel so awkward. But he plays it in such a way that, like, he does so... Such creepy things in this movie. And again, I'm trying to separate Spacey the man from Spacey the character, like the the actor here. Spacey somehow is able to sell this character, even though what he's doing is like skin crawlingly creepy. But we're laughing along with him when he's like talking to this 18 year old and saying like, 
do you need a ride? I have a car. I can give you a ride in my car. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's funny. But Lester's embarrassing himself. Janie is embarrassed by both of them. Carolyn is projecting all of her perfectionism. Like, I think she says, I watched you really closely, Jane, and you didn't screw up once. Yeah. And that's like the best compliment she can give. <laughs> yeah. And the scary, the scary thing for like, with that line is I know of kids who have parents like that. Yeah. I have friends whose parents are perfectionists right. like that. And they project those perfections on their kids. Yeah. And it's a, and that's a scary thing for a kid's psychology, for their well-being emotionally, for their social well-being. Like, those are bad things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that there are some characters in this movie that are set up in such a way. We need to talk about them after the break because they get at the real core themes of this movie, which is what is beauty and what is what does it mean to have a meaningful life? And I think some of those characters would be Angela because she's so misguided. She's super self-obsessed. Right. But then also Chris Cooper's character. So, Brad, why don't we press pause here? Let's open up this Crown Royal and take a sip. Because here on the Film and Whiskey podcast, we believe that one of the most beautiful things you can do in life is, is drink, drink whiskey. whiskey. All right. So here we are drinking Crown Royal. For some reason in my head, I always think of it as Crown Royale. A Royale with cheese? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crown Royal is the most famous, most popular Canadian whiskey there is. You know, usually if you buy a fifth of it, it comes in this ugly looking glass bottle, which comes in an even uglier velvet pouch. What are you talking about, Bob? That is beautiful. Which if you grew up a middle class person in there, suburbia, there's there's a there's a Crown Royal pouch full of paper clips or something in your house somewhere that your dad hang, hung on to from 30 years ago. But we just got ourselves a little pint of it and it is in the ugliest like this it's it's really cheap, flimsy plastic that has this like impression printed into it with a like Pepsi bottle twist off cap. And I am not looking forward to this, Brad. This does not look like it's going to be any good. Bob, I was meaning to tell you that Crown actually emailed us and wanted to sponsor our podcast. <laughs> not anymore. So <laughs> offer revoked. All right. So I'm going to open this bad boy up and you can hear me not pull the cork out, but open the childproof plastic cap. <laughs> on our crown royal <laughs> we'll be back with a taste hey everybody this is bob i just want to drop in here for a second and bring you up to speed on something cool we're doing we are going to be doing our first film and whiskey giveaway over on our instagram page if you're not following us head over to instagram we are at film whiskey and when you get there you're going to see that we're giving away a bottle of weller antique Weller Antique is becoming more and more hard to find because people use it in a concoction that they mix called Poor Man's Pappy. It's made in the same uh, distillery as Pappy using roughly the same mash bill. And so Weller Antique is something that flies off the shelf. You may not be able to find it in your area. So we're giving a bottle away. What you need to do is head over to Instagram, look at the post about the giveaway with the Weller Antique. You'll find instructions there on how to enter the giveaway. And what you'll see is that you're going to need a code word. And that code word is viscosity. That's right. Viscosity. If you remember that code word, what you'll have to do is send us a private message with the code word. Do not put it in the comments or you will be disqualified. Send us a private message with the code word. And if you fulfill all the other criteria to enter the giveaway, you will be entered to win a bottle of Weller Antique. So head on over to Instagram. Give us a like, follow us and enter our giveaway. And now back to the show. Okay, so Brad and I have poured out this Crown Royal, and I am not I like super... that you said poured out, like we just poured it straight in the trash. <laughs> just, just right into the sink. <laughs> uh, it's not very dark in color, and that's something that I found to be true with a lot of Canadian whiskeys, except for the Canadian club we had, had a nice color to it, but that was a 12-year age uh, distinction. Uh, we know that Canadian whiskey has to be aged for at least three years, so at the youngest, we're looking at a three-year whiskey here. We have no idea how many barrels went into this blend, but it's the largest, you know, manufacturer of Canadian whiskey in the world. So I'm assuming that this is a, a blend of many, many barrels. There's at least two. <laughs> at least two. <laughs> this is an 80 proof whiskey, which is kind of the bare minimum to be considered like a spirit. It's been significantly watered down, I'm sure. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this bad boy? Man, it has some apple. I noticed some apple too, which Hints is funny because they have a Crown Royal apple flavored. Yeah, and, and I've... The only the only flavored whiskey I've ever liked. So the funny thing is, I have never had it, but everybody I talk to that's like, oh, you like whiskey? Have you ever tried Crown Royal Sour Apple? That's funny. And I'm like, no, why would I try that? Flavor obsession <laughs> thing is like, you know, Brad and I are, we at least we pretend to be regular guys. We're actually superheroes, but. Yeah. 
Bob. I know. But I just don't understand the flavored X craze, like flavored vodkas, flavored whatever. I, I don't. Well, vodkas make sense because vodka on its own is it, just a filler. It, it tastes like nothing. It it's make, supposed to. It, it right. basically adds the proof to whatever drink. That's fair. But especially with a whiskey, like flavored whiskey just doesn't sound. If you're going to make a cocktail and put like orange in it. Right. Sure. Go for it. And the thing is, I've, I've had uh, Watershed Distillery makes a old fashioned flavored whiskey. That's a, actually pretty good. Yeah, It's a mixer in a bottle. Yeah. I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine with is like chemically adding these fake flavors to whiskey yeah. because I mean, we're not going to review that in the podcast. So, so you're not a fan of bird dog, huh? <laughs> Let's drink this bread. <laughs> yeah. I'm picking up some apple, uh, but I'm also just picking up a lot of like an acetone ethanol scent. So Brad, what do you think about the nose? What would you give it score wise on the nose? I would actually probably give it about a seven. I, I think it has a nice nose to it. That a, Those hints of apple are really nice. Yeah, the, the apple is nice, but having now had more expensive whiskeys, and granted, they're different kinds of whiskey, you get that sort of really strong ethanol acetone nose that I've only noticed in lower grade whiskeys. So I'm I'm not expecting much from it. I'll, I'll, I'm going to give it a four on the nose. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. Huh. So we just tasted it. And it is really, really sweet. Yeah. I didn't notice like a scotchy smoke to it, but it tasted like you could taste the toasted barrel. Yeah. It, I don't almost, know what wood they use. They don't have to use oak. They can use sherry. They can use whatever they want in Canada. Almost like a nutty. Yeah, but it definitely has some like toasty charred flavor to it. On the front half of my mouth, it tasted like a bourbon. Like I was tricked into thinking this is going to be a bourbon. And then when you go to swallow it, it's like water. It disappears. And there's no spice. There's no burn. There's no finish. It's just gone. So Crown is one of the, I mean, obviously, if you drink whiskey, you've probably drank Crown at some point. It's one of the whiskeys that I've had before. And my biggest complaint with it is that it's watery. Yeah, man. This is like, it like evaporates when it hits the back of your mouth. And even on the front, taking another sip, you get a few things, but not much. See, I like, I like sweeter whiskeys. That's why I'm a bourbon fan. So I'm going to try to differentiate taste and finish. I'm going to give this a seven on the taste. What really? would you give it, Brad? Man, I so I'm not enjoying the taste. I'm not noticing. So we've said before, when you smell something, a lot of times you start to taste that. Yeah. I'm not really tasting that nice, sweet apple to me at all. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a four. Okay. I'm not enjoying the taste. Now on the finish, this is a whole, a whole different ballgame for me because there is really none. Yeah. There's nothing there. Uh, which means I, I'm sorry to the Crown Royal company. Who owns them? I think Diageo. Sorry to Diageo, but uh, you get a two on the finish from. Yeah, I'm gonna give a three. Yeah, on the finish, it's not impressive. Overall balance, it's not bad. Like it, it's not nearly as bad as I expected to be coming out of this cheap looking bottle. Right. Uh, the nose is fine. The taste is good. The finish is non-existent. So I mean, it does fluctuate in terms of balance, but it's a very mild, inoffensive whiskey overall. And I think I would give it a six on the balance. I'm going to give it a five. Okay. Just perfectly average in the middle. It's okay. So uh, our final category is our newly implemented value category. Now, Brad got a pint. And Brad, what'd you pay for the pint? Uh, it was either $6.99 or $7.99. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking probably less than $25 for yeah. a fifth. And that's probably your standard for a mass produced whiskey. Yeah. Although I have to say, like... I, I hate to keep coming back to packaging because the packaging, it, it, I could be drinking out of an old chew. And if it's delicious, it's delicious. But like, well, I, I for think you're being five bucks. I know you get a glass. I was going to say, I bottle. think you're being unfair. The actual glass bottle of Crown yeah. is really nice and it looks cool. The cap is really nice. Yeah. The gold on the top. Yeah. It's shaped kind of like a heart. I, I wish it was a little less than 25. If it was the same price as the Canadian Club, which was aged 12 years and yeah. was less expensive, I How think much? I'd be all, I think it was like 21.99. Yeah. You know, and this is like 25 and you're not paying for anything dip. You're paying for something that's aged nine years less, probably. And you're paying for the label and the name Crown Royal. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and oh, a yeah. velvet bag. So value wise, I actually think this tastes better than I expected it to. Uh, if it was 20 bucks, I'd say it was a nine out of 10 at 25. I'm going to give it a six on the value. Yeah, I I am going to give it a five on value. I just. I wouldn't pay twenty four or five dollars for this. Yeah, I wouldn't either. That like it, it's not good enough, and I'm not going to pay an extra six or seven dollars for the name. No, 
And, and that's what you're paying for. Absolutely. Is the name. So this puts me out at a 25 out of 50, which I think is about right. I mean, this is 50th percentile or worse. Yeah. You know, it's, so it's fine. Would you recommend? I would recommend if someone like offered it to me in their house for free. It's drinkable. Like, I don't, I don't dislike this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't I don't dislike it. If somebody offered it to me, I would recommend it to them. No, what I'm saying is like, <laughs> you go over to a buddy's house and they said, you want some crown? Yeah. It's drinkable. I would not say no to literally any, if somebody offered me Basil Hayden's, I wouldn't say no. I like Even this, though that is the worst whiskey I've I had. like this better than Basil Hayden's. Yeah. No, I like this. Too. I like this better than Benchmark. Right. Um, And I think 25 is fine. I would say I would not recommend to go out and buy it myself. That And when I say, would you recommend? That's probably what I mean. Would Would you say... If somebody came to you and said, hey, I'm going out to buy myself a bottle of bourbon or whiskey or whatever. I'm looking for a Canadian whiskey. Should I buy Crown? Yes. Really? I don't like Canadian whiskey that much. I would I would say no, buy Canadian Club 12. That's fine. Because that was a much better whiskey. Yeah. I'd lean towards yes, but do what you want. It's Crown Royal. You know it's going to be there. <laughs> Brad, what would you recommend? Apologetically, <laughs> no. Oh, I thought you were going to say you would apologetically recommend. Like, I'm sorry, but yeah, bye. Bye. <laughs> All right, so this has been Crown Royal. We are off the rails here today. We didn't even talk about our final overall score, Bob. I did. I gave it a 25. What was yours? 24. 24? Yeah. All right, so I gave it a 25. Brad gave it a 24. 24.5 out of 50. Let's get back into talking about American beauty. So that was Crown Royal, and we're still here. Yeah. You know? I was disappointed. Yeah. But I knew... Actually, I'm not disappointed. I knew what I was getting into. I did, too. And it actually exceeded my very, very low expectations. It met my very low (laughs) expectations. (laughs) So let's get back into talking about American Beauty. We have a few characters that are pretty integral to the plot of the film that we haven't really talked about yet. And Brad, where do you want to go first? Well, so... One of the key things for me is is the character of Ricky. Yeah. Right? And and he talks about he gives you the movie title. He you know, he says this is true beauty. Yeah. When he's talking about the homeless person who died that he videotaped. Right. right? And then later in the movie, when he's when he walks up and sees Kevin Spacey dead on the counter, you see him smile in a way that makes you he is he is viewing this as beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so my, my question was, what exactly did he mean by beauty why did he take a video of a bag floating in the wind and yeah. say that it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever filmed yeah or, you know what i mean you know brad and i when we were in grad school we would talk about the subjects like this and there's this idea the word is liminal spaces where the distance between god and man is so thin and right. and it's called liminality and Ricky talks about this a little bit. He says that in the moment when he saw this homeless person, he thought it was beautiful because it was like for a second you could see God and and God allowed you to see back basically. Mm. And what I really love about the end of the film, you know, Lester dies. Lester dies by getting shot in the head and the kids stumble into the room after Lester's been shot and he's just laying there in a pool of his own blood. Ricky bends down and and kind of looks into Lester's eyes and does this smile where he he sees something kind of cosmic, kind of beautiful in it. And I think the idea of, I don't think this movie is condoning death or suicide or anything like that. Right. But the idea that there is something more out there beyond the confines of what Americans have confined themselves to in suburbia, that Ricky's capable of seeing how placid, how peaceful Lester was the moment before he died. But what I do love about it is that he doesn't just get caught up in that. He he looks he he's looking at Kevin Spacey's face and then all of a sudden he kind of snaps out of it and he realizes, wow, somebody's just been murdered in front right. of me. You know what I mean? So would you say then that American beauty is the escape from suburbia in the way that Kevin Spacey escapes from it finally? And, and I think the thing is one of the biggest plots of the movie is that Kevin Spacey is trying to seduce and sleep with a high school girl. Right. And he finally gets his chance. Right. She throws herself at him. He has the opportunity to take advantage of her and he doesn't. Yeah. And I, I feel like that is a turning point for his character where well, she, sure. he almost reaches like Maslow's pyramid, you know, hierarchy of needs of like this ethereal, I have made it. Yeah. I am complete within myself. I'm at peace with who I am. And then he gets shot in the head. Yeah. Would you say that that's an accurate kind of... I think it goes back to the way that this movie is filmed because the color scheme is important to everything. The, inside the Burnham house, especially Lester's house, it's all grays and whites and blacks. And there's these little pops of red. 
And the first time you notice it is that scene we talked about earlier where Janie and Lester are kind of fighting in the kitchen. He's wearing gray and white. The kitchen is black and white. She's wearing gray and white, except for her sleeves are this bright red color. And they had just gotten done talking to her that day about, are you trying to look unattractive? Are you trying to stand out? And it's this really early seed, I think, that's being planted that what they consider normal isn't normal. You know, Angela, Janie's friend, her biggest concern is being ordinary. And she's deathly afraid of being ordinary. And where her character goes at the end of the movie is that Ricky, this outcast, tells her, you are painfully ordinary and you know it. And that's that's the thing. And Janie is standing out from this conformity that suburbia wants her to have. And you see it in the red. And so red comes to kind of dominate the film. When Lester's having these fantasies about Angela, it's always in the shape of these really red rose petals because it's like it's what he's viewing as beauty in that moment. And I think that's what really the color red and the roses come to symbolize. It's not just beauty, but it's desire. Hmm. And sometimes those things can get misread. These characters are all desiring something more and they're all desiring something deeper. Carolyn is looking for fulfillment with sex. Lester's looking for fulfillment with sex, the teenager and with living like a teenager. Uh, you know, Ricky and Janie are trying to just get away and get out and get, you know, out from under Angela's thumb. And so when they are when Lester's viewing Angela as the object of his desire, it's this misplaced idea of beauty. And red symbolizes all of it. Anything a character views as beautiful. But I think by the end of the movie, it really tells you what true beauty is. Hmm. I think the other part about this movie that stands out to me, that the, the reason we talk about it as a great movie and the reason why it won best picture for the year, best actor, all these other things, isn't simply for its color, or its theme, or its message. It's a well-made movie. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me is this is one of the most perfectly s symmetrical movies I have ever seen hmm. in the way that all of the characters almost have a perfect opposite. They have somebody that they connect to and somebody that they that they fight with. The way that the script is written puts them in situations early in the movie that they are they, they have the opposite situation later in the movie. The, the way the families interact, there is so much about this movie that is perfectly symmetrical, almost representing what we want in suburbia. We want that perfect lawn. We want those perfect rose bushes. We want the perfect driveway. We want the perfect everything, the house, the, yeah. the car, yeah. the, all of this. And the, the movie is so well made and it's so clean and it and the cuts from scene to scene are smooth the the whole movie is incredibly well made well and i mean you know we talked for a second about the sixth sense earlier and that movie came out the same year and red was a dominant color in that movie too and i think it it definitely means different things in both movies but i i can't get away from this idea of the color red representing desire or beauty you know when kevin spacey's character is lusting after this teenager and he sees her in his fantasies you know ensconced with rose petals right. it's because to him and to the characters in this movie, beauty is what they think is going to lead to a better life. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. For Carolyn, it's her rose bushes, which she doesn't really care about. It's cosmetic. It's it's things to make her life look more perfect on the outside. You know, at the end of the film, when she's sitting in front of the house in the pouring rain, ready to go confront Lester with a gun, she rolls her window down and you see the front door of the house is red. Like the house is what she thinks is going to give her a better life. It's mm. this fake life in the suburbs. For Kevin Spacey, it's a teenage girl and then it's a firebird that he doesn't need. And I think it isn't until the last moment of Kevin Spacey's life in the movie when he 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 learns about his daughter being happy. He finally figures out like, no, I'm going to be OK. It's all going to be OK. And he looks at a black and white picture. But of his family, but it's that picture surrounded by rose petals, too. Yeah, it's it's next to a bouquet of roses. And I think that mm. it's that's the moment that he understands what beauty really is. And it goes back to this scene halfway through the movie that you were talking about with Ricky, where he's showing Janie the most beautiful thing he's ever filmed, which is literally a plastic bag floating in the wind up against a red brick wall. Yeah. It was one of those days it's a minute away from snowing. And there's this electricity in the air. You can almost hear it. Right? And this bag was just... dancing with me. Like a little kid begging me to play with it. minutes. I 
yesterday I realized that there was this entire life behind things. And this incredibly benevolent force that wanted me to know that there was no reason to be afraid. What did you think about that scene? I think that this we we probably misinterpreted this entire movie because I think that this movie is actually a biopic about Terrence Malick. <laughs> Terrence Malick loved that scene. Terrence Malick is Ricky. Terrence Malick is the bag. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also Janie. That's right. Yeah. For for real though, as I was watching that scene, I was like, "Oh, Ricky is Terrence Malick." And this, he and he's like getting scene, into stuff that we don't understand. That scene gets parodied a lot. Because yeah. it's really easy on the surface to say, ha, 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 like a plastic bag is, is beautiful. But that's the point in the movie where, you know, on this watch, I've probably seen this movie 10 times. On this watch, I was like, oh, this movie really needs to find its footing. It's trying to be funny. It's trying to be serious. And then as soon as Ricky has, he kind of starts crying a little mm-hmm. bit, talking about how there's so much beauty in the world. And no one around him sees it because they're so busy trying to make a meaningful life out of dumb stuff. And if you just stop. And he talks about how this bag is basically dancing with him for 15 minutes. And it is silly and it is goofy. But again, he's a teenager. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think there's something about that where he catches a glimpse of the normal being beautiful. Yeah. Where the thing is, it's almost in contrast to what he tells Angela, where he says he basically tells her you're painfully ordinary. Yeah. But when he talks about the bag dancing in the wind, it's almost like he's pointing out like in suburbia, you're always chasing after the next shiny red thing yeah when you need to be seeing the beauty in the ordinary yeah and i I think that's a large part of what is beautiful in the movie is that it's not having the next thing the next italian leather couch or the next firebird or the next teenage girl that you're chasing after or the next size up on you know he's lifting the whole movie and trying to get you know jacked and stuff that it's not those things that bring beauty It truly is the ordinary, the normal in the world that can be beautiful. I watched this movie having seen it before. You know, we sit down to do these movies and I try to watch them with fresh eyes. And I watching it, trying to watch it with fresh eyes. I'm like, my gosh, this is a risky movie. Oh, yeah. They go places, especially in that first hour, like his fantasies get carried away and you don't know where this movie is going to go. And I just remember even knowing how it ends, thinking like, man, this seems problematic in 2019. They really need to nail this landing or, you know, this ending. Yeah. yeah. And the last half hour of the movie is just utterly perfect. Everything about the conclusion, the way they tie up the loose ends, but also the it brings in a a layer of kind of sentiment. Yeah, if that's a word I can use the, for this. The way that he narrated over the gunshot five or six times in a row and yeah. they showed each person's reaction as they heard it. Yep was so good. Yeah. I was glued to my the edge of my seat. Well, yeah, and it does have this sort of mystery whodunit idea of, of who ended up killing Lester. Um, but then the final conclusions that he draws about, you know, I could be pretty mad about what happened to me, but there's so much beauty around. And it, it seems tacky and it seems cheesy, but if you buy into what this movie is actually talking about, there there is an escape from the things that we busy ourselves with. And there's beauty around us if we just, you know, take a moment to look for it. Yeah. We could talk about this movie for another three hours. We didn't even delve into Chris Cooper. No, we didn't. And I don't even know if we have time to now. You uh, know, it's Ricky's dad, who is the the army. Uh, I think he's a colonel. Colonel Fitz, yeah. I think his name is. Or Major Fitz. Major Fitz. Yeah, okay. And, you know, he's violent and he's a simplistic person. He's he's guarded. He's obviously guarding his own homosexual impulses. And the way that he responds to it is to shut everybody out. You see how shell-shocked his wife is as a result of living with this man. She was one of the scariest... I just felt so bad for her. ...performances I've ever seen because she is so... Just dead. ...battered. Yeah. Ugh. It's so sad. Yeah. And uh, the final scene that Ricky has, you know, Ricky basically... Brad hinted at this, but uh, uh, Major Fitz, Colonel Fitz, whatever his name is, he thinks that he's catching Ricky and Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey in the act of doing something, some sort of sexual act. And he actually sees through the window and he doesn't see it correctly. They're actually just smoking weed. But Ricky realizes that his dad hates homosexuality so much that even he would reject his own son at the hint of it. And he sees it as an escape. He sees it as an escape, but I think he sees there's no there's no way I can redeem this relationship. Yeah. No matter what I do, he's going to believe what he's going to believe. And so Ricky leans into it and says, yeah, I am. You know, I'm gay and I'm a male prostitute. And he starts making up this elaborate story and he gets kicked out of the house. And the final image you get of the two of them together 
is, you know, Colonel Fitz with his hands raised to fight his son. Like an English boxer. Like, like an old Irishman, right? <laughs> but just breaking down because he would rather put this barrier of violence between them than consider something that's outside of his paradigm. Right. And he's the, the biggest representative of what this movie says goes on in the suburbs, which is confining yourself to a certain way of life and not looking outside those boundaries. That you have to project an image right. of what you think the rest of the world wants to see in order to be successful. Exactly. Exactly. We could go on and we on really, about We really movie. could. I love this movie. I, I did think this time around watching it that the first hour I was like, oh man, I, I hope this is as good as I remember it being. And then it was. Yeah. Um, one, I don't, of the, one of the struggles for me was the music. It felt very 90s. So here's the thing. Thomas Newman is the, the composer. Mm -hmm. If you listen to any Thomas Newman score, I don't know enough about music theory to pinpoint like, oh, he uses this kind of chord. Right. Every single score he does sounds like that. Huh. He did the score for this. He did the score for Finding Nemo. He did the score for Road to Perdition. If you listen to any track of any soundtrack that he did, they all sound the same. The I think it's a great score. I just think it's been the same score for 30 years with yeah. him. The funny thing for me is the piano music that plays when Ricky is talking about the bag dancing and the beauty. That piano piece is one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, I've, I've been hearing that for years and years and years now. It came up on a Pandora station. I love that yeah. piano track, but the more goofy music when, you know, Kevin Spacey is sure. like in his it's got like a xylophone world. kind of yeah. sound to it. Yeah, that didn't come across well for me. Yeah. So this movie is not perfect. You know, there, there are some flaws to it. But overall, I'm still blown away with this. I cannot believe this came out in 1999 in the environment that America was in, that it caught on enough to win Best Picture. I don't think it's gotten enough critical love since then. There's I mean, 99 was a great year for movies, but we need to be talking about this movie more. And especially in light of the Me Too movement and how it holds up as a result of that. Brad, what would you give this movie out of 10? Ooh, I usually I have this score ready to go when I'm done watching it. This is an extremely difficult movie to rate because I, A, some of the crassness of the movie I struggle with. Yeah. B, there, there's certain parts of the movie I don't care for, but the big thing that draws me into this movie is that it talks about something that people won't talk about. Right. And it, and it, it might bring you to a conclusion that you might not agree with, but at least it talks about it and it draws you into the conversation. I am going to give it a nine out of 10. I would give it a nine as well. I think the thing that, that makes this movie great is that it's cynical, but it's not mean to its characters. It doesn't dislike the characters. Everyone has motivations, whether or not they're good people. And I think you can the, understand why they're doing the things they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the moral of the story is that even for someone like Lester Burnham, whose midlife crisis leads him to wanting to have sex with a 17 year old and and splurging on cars and doing these reprehensible things. The moral of the story is there's beauty to be found even for people like that. And there's mm. redemption for everyone. And I think the way that the script goes about bringing those themes out, it truly takes it from being just a mean send up of suburbia to something that can really be timeless and transcendent. So yeah, I'd give it a nine out of 10 as well. But hey, we want to know what you think about it. So why don't you get on our Instagram or our Twitter? The handle for both of them is at film whiskey with an E. You can get on our Facebook page, film and whiskey podcast, or you could give us a call at 216-800-5923. That is 216 800-5923. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. Next week, we'll be back talking about one of our favorites, 1977's Annie Hall. No, just kidding. Star Wars. <laughs> we'll see you next week. I don't want to drink this. <laughs> like I, I'm not trying to be like snooty. It's just like, I can just tell this is going to be bad, dude. Yeah.